Buenos dias. Buenos dias, family. Uh, good morning. That's what I said. If you're visiting, my name is Peter, and I am on the team of elders that leads the church. Today I get to preach our sixth week in our preaching series called The Remnant. God has always been faithful in all the world to fulfill all his promises, but rarely do we get a relatively full view of that like we see here in Romans 10 and 11. So with the Holy Spirit's help, we're going to zoom out of our own circumstances and zoom in to what he's saying about Israel and what he's saying about world history here in Romans 10 and 11. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet to honor God's word. Be Romans 10, the last verse, so verse 21 through Romans 11, verse 6. But of Israel, he, Isaiah, says, All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Verse 1 of chapter 11, I ask then, Paul says, Has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the house or the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars and I alone am left and they seek my life. But God, what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time, Paul says, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Verse 6, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. The word of the Lord. Y'all can be seated as we pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your word. Please add a blessing, a supernatural blessing to the reading of your word. Lord, give us eyes to see more like what you see and how you see the world and how you see history. And so give us new capacity to, to navigate our part in history more appropriately and faithfully for you, and with you, and in you. Amen. Amen. Now, before we dig any deeper into our passage today, I want to first address something from last week. I commented on Romans 10, verse 15, where Paul references Isaiah and says, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And what I said brought some struggle. Uh, Now, to be clear, my aim is to help you to struggle with what God's word says, but not as much to struggle with what I say about it. Uh, We were really brave to to walk through Romans 9 with this good kind of struggle. Uh, But last week was a little bit different in Romans 10, verse 15, because it was a little bit more of the pastors pondering about Romans 10, 15, and less about what Romans 10, 15 is challenging 
us. And for that alone, I'm sorry. Now, what I said is that I think that beautiful feet was intended to be ironic because it's not necessarily the feet that are beautiful, but the message that obedient feet bring. And I do not go back on any of that. That's right on. But what I said after that and how I commented on that brought some struggle. And I said this. I said that often I'm concerned that too many of us are focused on external beauty and distracted from internal beauty. And I qualified my concern with uh, some examples that seemed pretty one-sided and aimed at women. And for that, again, that was an unattended slip, and I'm sorry. Maybe you, like me, are uh, trying to cut a few pounds, trying to, to be healthy, more importantly, at any size that you are. Maybe, maybe you're working out. Maybe you enjoy fashion and makeup. Maybe you like some other external hobby like football or hunting or chess. And all of these things are good and appropriate for Christians. But my challenge is that we need to be careful not to allow good things to be God things in our lives. We mustn't allow external things to become internal idols. I have three daughters, and I love how they're pretty, and they love to dress up and look beautifully, and I don't want to quench that. But I will aim it so that their outer beauty is mastered by their inner beauty that comes only from Jesus Christ. And I have a son, and I hope that God gives him eyes to behold true beauty as God sees it. And I pray that my sons and my daughters don't confuse their identity with the way they look or the things that they possess or the careers that they temporarily do, but rather they see their identity wrapped up, swallowed up by what God says about them in his word and how he speaks through them in the world with their short time on earth. And let me just say in that regard that you, people of the Springs, are some of the most beautiful people that ever were because of how you bring the gospel of Jesus to others. Your feet truly are beautiful. So my challenge remains, fight to preserve and protect that beauty. Don't let any lesser thing get in the way. And how do you fight to protect his beauty? Psalm 119, how does a young man keep his way pure or a young woman? By keeping it according to the word of God. So let's jump in deeper to the word of God, shall we? Oh, I'll get that later. Romans 10. Uh, Just so you know, chapters and verse numbers were added a few centuries after scripture was written. So often... The, the numbers are really helpful, and the chapter divisions are really helpful, but sometimes they're not. So Paul opens up with talking about Israel's rejection of God, and he follows up with the, the contrast. Does that mean that God has rejected Israel? The very next verse, which happens to be a different chapter. I don't think that's a helpful chapter division. So here we go. Verse 21 of chapter 10 But of Israel, he, Isaiah, asks, all day long I've held out, says, all day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. I ask then, has God 
rejected his people? I want us to pause here. With God's help, pause in moments like this. I'm going to spend half of my time, my remaining time, addressing how we tend to approach verses and chapters like these and why it hinders us. Our attempts to speed up often slow us down and move us backwards. I'm going to spend the other half of my remaining time pulling two points that I see very clearly in our text. But first, why I'm concerned about how we tend to approach the Bible in general, but verses like Romans, chapters like Romans 11 in particular. I'm concerned that we miss the big things of God and what he wants to do with us because we're so used to, accustomed to wrapping ourselves up in small things. And I don't think this is only an American problem, but I can see that I think our microwave, fast-paced American culture doesn't help. I think for all of us, our ethnocentric lens clouds our view of history and how we see ourselves in it. And our rushed lifestyle and our lust for instant change and progress and application hinders how we see the Bible and history. So can you put your hand on your heart for me? I'm going to have you participate here. And repeat after me. Say to yourself, God's story is bigger than my story. Good job. See, I'm cheating a little bit because I know if I can get you preaching to yourself, then I'm going to preach a little better. Don't assume that you know what's important in your life. What's relevant what's most applicable in your life. God knows. It's not your job to figure out what your life's all about. It's your gift from God to know the one who gave you life and to learn how you can love him and obey him. And as you sit on these big, hard questions that are kind of bigger than maybe what we came in here with, I think you'll find that you'll be shocked to see all that God has done to make it even possible for us to walk with him. I think, though, too often we go to the Bible and we implicitly or even explicitly sometimes we we say, how can this book improve my life? In essence, kind of like, how does this book make much of me? And this is totally backwards. And I'm afraid to say that preachers like me all too often contribute to this problem. We feed into this problem. Instead of relating God's eternal plan to your current and ongoing experiences, which is called contextualization, that's what I should do. We can often reduce what the Bible says to kind of fit within or under your life experiences, which is reductionism. It sounds similar, but it's not. Instead of enlarging the listener, the congregant, to see something greater, we tend to often reduce the greatness of God's story to fit within small stories. Lord, help us, preachers. Brothers and sisters, we cannot, we must not go to God and place our impatient demands on the Bible. We cannot say, give me a list of things to improve my life. Instant application 
is not why the Bible was graciously given to us. The Bible's a story. It's a story, not a how-to. It's a story about God. It's a story about a sovereign God that predestines and foreknows. That's kind of bigger than we're capacitated to think about because he is bigger than us. It's a story that God, a God who predestines, an all-powerful God that creates, but then the people he created rebel against him, and we degenerate into lesser than what we were created for, and we sin against each other, and there's wars, and there's shootings, and there's all sorts of horrible things, and to a certain degree, that's the world as we know it. That's the world that's in the news. That's kind of world history to most people. But God sends a different thread of history in the Bible that's still here for us to see and to grasp hold of. Nonetheless, in this world of enmity, God chooses Abraham and his offspring, the Israelite, the Jewish people. They suffer for centuries in Egypt in slavery for four centuries. They're delivered by the amazing Exodus, also in the book of Exodus, convenient to us English listeners, and he enters them into the promised land. And he, in the, the subsequent years, gives them great kings like David and Solomon. It's glorious. But then the, the children, the offspring of David and Solomon, forget their God. And things get worse than they were before. And the promised land seems to not have much promise. It's the opposite. It's just pain. It's almost like God has rejected them. See, they're, they're promised this, these great things, even, even prophets coming and saying, there is a glory that's greater than your most glorious kings. And then these moments of exile, where they were, they were exiled from their land, they were promised the glory of a greater king, a king of kings, a mighty God, a wonderful counselor, a Messiah, a savior, they're promised. And then they're brought back from exile for 500 years of silence to decide, will we get impatient and allow our circumstances to dictate what reality is, or will we remember the promise of God and see that come to bear on world history? And then in the most unexpected time in this story, the promised Messiah comes and fulfills all the law, all the Bible in the most unexpected way, which is how God tends to roll. This Messiah, his name is Yeshua, which in Hebrew, Hebrew means salvation, translated into English, Jesus. Salvation himself comes and lives a perfect life and dies a sacrificial death. He becomes the atonement, the once and for all Yom Kippur, the, this holiday that Jews are celebrating this coming Tuesday and Wednesday, Jesus is the final atonement. And then he rises from the dead to prove his power of his atonement and give his life and grant his life to those who would follow him. And he ascends into heaven and sends his spirit just like he promised and just like it was echoed in the prophet Joel that we read in Romans 9. He will send his Holy Spirit on all flesh, just like Joel had promised hundreds of years before. And this is a great and glorious story. But what now? As you guys know, look around the room. The world hasn't ended yet, so what, what now? 
And this is the question that, that Paul was asking. What now? What about the rest of Israel? What about the rest of the world? That's what Paul's asking here in Romans 11. Now, if you came to church today asking these great big questions, what now of world history? What now of the Jews? What now of Israel? If you are asking these questions coming into church today, then God bless you. But if you came to church today asking lesser questions, which I'm guessing is the case, then that's okay. Because God will not leave you to lesser questions. The Savior doesn't stop saving us from us. Uh, He won't leave you to the lesser life or the American dream. He'll burn away the chaff and pull you up to something greater so that we can go to the Bible and we, we don't bring the Bible to bear. We don't bring ourselves to bear on the Bible. We bring the Bible to bear on ourselves and we can ask questions like, how do I get to know this God? and function within his story. We don't have to impatiently demand of the Bible, how does this apply to my life right now? Instead, we can ask, how does my life fit into something greater than I'm capable of applying right now? That's what God capacitates us for. And so often, God is so merciful to just pull us right out of our lesser stories and wrap us up into a greater story. Even when we're not ready for it, church, let me just illustrate this, how he's done this in other ways in my life. Zooming into how he's kind of pulled me out of my ethnocentric paradigm time and time again, and he's not stopping. When I'm content to focus on lesser things, like the the, the most recent news in the football world, for example, God will redemptively inconvenience me with something nearer to his heart like the pain and suffering of others. He'll bring a friend into my life that's grieving over something like the pain and oppression felt by millions of black people who have faced systemic injustice century after century, decade after decade. Friends of mine that have had to ask questions like this. Check this question out. How can I follow Jesus and be free and forgiving on the inside, and yet at the same time, lift up his standards for justice and equity in the world around me? How how do I balance that? Let me just say, that's a pretty big question. That's bigger than the questions I tend to ask and have to manage. That's bigger than any football question that I ask. And I have to admit, often, When I hear questions like this and I encounter pain like this, I'm inclined to react defensively. Can I just be real here for a second? I'll be real with y'all. I react defensively to such pain, whether it's pain with people that have suffered systemic injustice or even pain like of my wife that I seldom see how I often contribute to. And I'll react like this. How does this apply to me? How is this relevant to me? If I can't fix it now, then I don't want to keep hearing about it. And God says, son, I don't need you to do anything about this. What I want for you is to shut your mouth and to listen 
and to grieve and to lament and to draw near to me so that I can do something bigger with you in my mercy, in my grace, in my love than you're able to manage right now. I want to capacitate you to do what I've promised in the next chapter of Romans, to rejoice with those who rejoice and to grieve with those who grieve. And this requires, like everything else that's worthy in life, the Holy Spirit's help. It's trickier than I can manage. I still don't have answers, and that's okay. And my point is that God often presses down his bigger story into our lesser stories, our lesser conveniences in life, even when I don't know what to do with it because he's God like that. And how much more the greater story of redemption in world history and God's election by grace of this people whom he has not, in fact, rejected in Israel. How much more his story in Romans 11 His story is bigger than my story. It's bigger than how I see the world. It's bigger than my football. It's bigger than my political views. It's bigger than my economic concerns. What you'll find is the biggest news is rarely in the news. And it's definitely not on your social media. This is where we need a praise break. We're going to work on this. So can we be brave, church? Can we be patient? patient enough to embrace the complexity of God's word. Here's what's great about God. We don't have to come in here feeling what he feels or thinking what he thinks, but God will work with the people who are submitted to him in his word. So let's get into this a little deeper. I'm going to take you back to our first verse and take you a little further in. Y'all ready? Strap in. But of Israel, he says, Isaiah says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. I ask then, Paul says, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. God foreknew these people. He united himself to a people. Can you see how Paul is addressing a a bigger question than we're often, often prone to asking? And more importantly, Paul has answers and he has some evidence. And he has a list, in a nutshell, his evidence as he displays his two main arguments I see in Romans 11. Number one, my summary of his argument, my first point, takeaway, is three words. Number one, God is faithful. God was faithful. He is faithful. He always will be faithful. He is God. Verse one says, he has not rejected his people. Context, even when they reject him over and over again. Don't allow your lesser, more limited circumstantial evidence silence the bigger evidence that God is faithful, for instance. In June of 1963, Martin Luther King Jr. sat in a Birmingham jail. And yet even in those circumstances, he trusted that God is faithful. 
And he wrote of this faithfulness and God's beauty and holiness and his righteous standard. And he called our nation up to that, to God. And similarly, this same Paul who wrote Romans years afterward was in a Roman jail in the city of Rome awaiting his execution. And instead of trying to go back on what he thought about God based on his circumstances, he wrote this to young Timothy. He said, if we are faithful, faithless, God remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. God is faithful. And specifically what Romans 11 here is powerfully underlining is that God is faithful to his chosen people, Israel. Remember, time and time again, he's underlined this. Before he delivered them into the promised land, Deuteronomy 31, he he says, Be strong and courageous. Many of y'all have heard these words. Do not be afraid or terrified because of your enemies. Why? This is important. Why are we to be strong and courageous? Because we, we trust in ourselves, we trust in our training, football people say. No, be strong and courageous for the Lord Yahweh, your God, goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Man, that's a promise to wear. Years later, he raises kings up. He chooses King Saul and yet rejects him. And then he chooses David and raises David up. And right before David is dying, he wanted to give David a promise so that David looking upon his sons, wouldn't have the the same type of trepidation about, well, are my sons going to go the way of Saul? And God says in verse 15 of 2 Samuel 7, but my loving kindness shall not depart from your son Solomon as I took it away from Saul before you, whom I removed. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. That's a big promise. What happened is that generations afterward had to, for centuries, decide, is this promise more real than the circumstances I feel? Didn't mean for that to rhyme, but boom. See, even as the house of Israel, what you'll see in the, the, the generations after Solomon, they rejected God. They began fighting with one another. The house of Israel split from the house of Judah. They became different nations. Both, what they had in common was that they were both rebelling against God and incessant, nonstop idolatry. And God sends his judgment through other nations like Assyria and Babylon. And the Jewish people could have questioned, and many did, whether or not, based on their circumstances, whether or not God really is faithful. Whether or not his word and the prophets that we keep hearing us say that he's faithful. Do I believe that? Because in the fullness of time, the long-awaited fulfillment of the promise came in bodily form. Jesus, the glorious, the, the veiled, almost seemingly obscure arrival of Jesus came. He came first to the Jews but also to the Gentiles. And so many of the Jews rejected him. And so Paul's sitting here writing Romans 11 thinking, what does this mean? 
Jesus unexpectedly comes and unexpectedly fulfills the promise to, to bring this word to all the nations, to the Gentile nations. And it seems like my people have rejected him. What does this mean? Does this mean that God will reject them ultimately as well? Was that the last straw for God? Does he now go back on his promise to David? Is God not faithful? And Paul's emphatic answer is, no. No, he foreknew them. He united himself to them. And his first piece of evidence is, no, God has not rejected the Jews. Look at me. I'm a Jew. And he says, look, other times he says, I'm the worst of the worst of my brethren. I'm the lowest of the lows, and yet God has, has chosen me. He's loved me despite my passionate and religious faithlessness. God remains faithful. Don't let your narrow view of history, Paul is saying, confuse how you see ultimate truth. On the contrary, we need to inform our view of history with what ultimate truth says and the the lens of the promise of the Bible. We need to lift up the promises of the Bible as if it were the, the only lenses through which we could put on and rightly interpret world history around us. Has God rejected the Jews? By no means. I am one of them. I think at many points in world history, you could ask the reverse question, about non-Jews and understand it from this angle. What if, what if an Egyptian would have said, has God rejected the Egyptian people? At many vantage points from history, this could have been a question that was burning on people's minds, but we can see from our vantage point, no. In fact, Jesus raises from the dead, ascends into heaven, pours out his spirit, and for at least two centuries... Egypt, specifically Alexandria, would be the cultural, intellectual, theological center of the Jewish Christ's spreading of faith. And from our vantage point, the last few decades, we hear foolish things come about like, oh, Christianity is a white man's religion. Hear things like this. A Jewish man extends the gospel to Gentiles and Middle Eastern people, and Northern African people share in this faith. Or you could fast forward to the third or fourth century. As God was moving in the Middle East and Northern Africa, a narrow vantage point of human history could have asked, has God rejected the Irish people or the other pale-skinned Germanic barbarians of the North? And the response again would be, no. Just wait to see the truth that God is faithful, bear down on human history unto every tribe and tongue and nation. God is faithful. Number two, grace is grace. Grace is grace. So in response to the anxiety of allowing a a narrow vantage point of human history to inform our view of who God is, Paul's next argument here, the next half of our passage, comes from kind of stepping inside Elijah's mind. Elijah, who was in the middle of the the generations that had rejected 
God, the generations after the great kings, and he was kind of working with a nation that was just a total wreck. And he says, do you not know, Paul says, what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've demolished your altars, and I alone am left. Have you ever thought like that? (laughs) See, when God sets you apart, which is what the word holiness in the Old Testament means, it can be easy to think that he sets you aside. But no, no, no. He sets you apart for something greater. And he, you can think things like, I alone am left. No, no, no. He said, I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? He says, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant, Paul says, chosen by grace. And I think we can add that at the present time, in 2019, there is a remnant of Jews. But if it is by grace, he says, they're chosen by grace. And if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So what he's saying is, grace is grace. Now, again, that's a simple sentence. I made it up myself. But we often think that we're being smart when we have contrary ideas that arise in how we're supposed to serve God in our pride. God has always preserved a remnant of people that follow him faithfully. Now, next week, we're going to see from the rest of Romans 11 how God's plan for a faithful remnant will eventually sweep through the whole nation of Israel Because if God can preserve 7,000 Jews in the days of Elijah and preserve a remnant in the days of Paul, then at any point he can preserve a remnant to our day. And at any generation he chooses, he can cause 7 million to return to him. And we'll get into that next week. But first consider the primary actor in all of this. God says he has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. And then he speaks in first person to Elijah. I have kept, I have reserved is the word. And, and then this word, I have kept for myself. God isn't saying, woo, that, that was a close one. I really bit the bullet on that. Thankfully, lucky stars, there's, there's a few people out there that still obey me and, and follow me. No, th- this is not a remnant of people preserved by themselves. It's a remnant that, as verse 5 says, are chosen by grace. And I say, grace is grace. Verse 6 says, if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. It's not by works. Not a work of human choice primarily, or faithfulness that makes you deserve what verse 5 says is election by grace. You can't qualify yourself for grace, not by performance, not by sincerity, not by race or ethnicity, not by the faith of your parents. And consider the freedom of the reverse. We've said this before. We'll say it again. You can't disqualify yourself from something that you never qualified yourself for. For in the first place, 
Now, I realize this whole thing of God being in control can make us feel uncomfortable. And I say again, let it, let's bring on the discomfort. When you feel like you're not in control, you have a unique opportunity to feel what it means to be under grace. You're not in control. Anyone over 30 gets that. You're not, no matter what age you are. But grace is grace. I also don't think that if you're in here, you have to ask the question, a question like, what if I'm not chosen by grace? I don't think you have to ask that question. And this is my opinion. Now, here's why. I think it's such a unique and mysterious gift for us to even hear the word of God preached and see the truth of God revealed that we don't have any good reason, if that's the case, to think that we're excluded. If he's given us grace to hear, then it's grace upon grace to respond And so here, and I say in the name of Jesus Christ, respond and let grace be grace and give him the glory and rest in his grace. Philippians 1.6 says, I am confident in this, that he who began a good work in you will see it through to completion. So allow the space in your mind and in your volition, in your choosing, not be doubting whether or not God is God and God is faithful and grace is grace. Use that energy to honor him, to preach the gospel in a world that will reject you, but it doesn't matter because by grace, you've already been chosen by a higher order and a greater God. God chose Israel by grace and through the Jews extends the same grace to the Gentiles. Now, Here's why this grace first to Israel and then to the Gentiles that Paul keeps saying is so important. Preacher in, in uh, uh, Minneapolis, John Piper said, if God is not faithful to Israel, then you have no hope of him being faithful to you. In other words, if God is not faithful to his promise here in Romans 11, what confidence do we have that he's faithful to the promise that we talked about this summer, like in Romans 8? What hope do you have when you lose your job? When you're rejected by your friends? When you're betrayed by your spouse? When you suffer injustice or brutality at the hands of sinful men? What hope is there for a mother who loses a baby? If God is not faithful, then God is not glorious. And God's glory and his faithfulness is what separates us from being merely evolved beasts with no hope or purpose in the world. But grace is grace. And God is God, and God is glorious, and God is faithful, and he's faithful to Israel, and he will never be anything but faithful to all believers in all of history. Romans 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? 
He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Can you stand?